Let's go back in time. 25 years. You work at a car manufacturer, part of a team that's charged with reconfiguring a factory floor. This is a mighty task, given how incredibly complicated factory floor operations can be. You want to get a sense of what the layout will look like before investing all the time and money it takes to install machinery. But the technology at your disposal is, let's just say, pretty rudimentary. You know, looking at physical space, people will use cardboard boxes, literally. That's Eric Green, who has nearly three decades of manufacturing experience. He recalls people actually doing this, stacking up boxes to get a sense of where machines will go, trusting the future of their business to a tedious and, let's face it, not very precise method. Manufacturing engineers walk down to the shop floor and put cardboard boxes in where they think the piece of equipment will go and walk around and look and take measurements and identify, well, can we actually put a piece of equipment here? That process was time-consuming and bound to produce errors. It's emblematic of the kind of guesswork that has plagued manufacturers in the past. It, it happens, and unfortunately, I think it still happens in some places today. Even if they aren't literally using cardboard boxes, many manufacturing processes are sluggish, inefficient, and difficult to change, even though updating them is crucial for long-term success. Let's say in North America, you know, a car factory is making these sedans and 2005 models are going to go to a 2006 model. You know, making that change over to incorporate those new engines or the new powertrains or these new sports models might take four weeks because they have to change the equipment. They have to reconfigure the supply lines and then they have to do all this testing to make sure they can actually have space uh, for these new additions. In short, it was an incredibly cumbersome process, but those were the bad old days. Today, Eric is vice president of user experience at Delmia, which is part of Dassault Systems. Dassault Systems makes 3D models that can simulate in minutes what used to take weeks of trial and error. I can do all this testing virtually where I can see, do I need to increase the space between my assembly stations? So that can account for that extra length of that spoiler or the extra length of the fenders that I'm adding for the sports line. So I can do that and simulate that virtually. And so I can know what the impact is of these changes to that car well in advance of actually doing the model change. New technologies allow enterprises to create digital twins, virtual representations of products, multi-step processes, even entire factories. Several years ago, that technology of getting, getting a 3D model of a factory uh, would have been time consuming. There is scanning technology today that allows companies to go in and scan their factories in the course of a day and represent with some configuration an actual virtual 3D model of that factory as it is today. In other words, we've come a long way from the days of shuffling around cardboard boxes on the factory floor. The very nature of manufacturing is changing. And no matter where you sit along the supply chain, these changes have massive implications for your enterprise. I'm Elise Hugh. And I'm Josh Klein. And this is Built for Change, a podcast from Accenture. At least we, we all got to see supply chain shortages up close and personal in 2020. Oh, gosh, yeah. Did you have any particular experiences that like stood out for you? Well, obviously, there were the personal annoyances, right? Mm. The whole run on toilet paper and other supplies. Right. I remember grocery store shelves being empty in America for the first time in, in my adult life. Yep. And... Then it extended, I feel like, because there were so many container ships that were stuck in ports right. and the global supply chain was disrupted. 
We saw things like high rental car prices or an inability to find cars to buy, even if you wanted to buy a used car or a new car. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of things have been backed up. And that carried forward, right? Like then we saw a whole bunch of different companies that were were starting to reconfigure their entire supply chain line to find ways to be more flexible and more resilient. Absolutely. And I think there's probably many brands that managed to avoid these issues in order to come out the other side. Yeah. What is it that made the difference? Like what's the difference between the companies that took advantage of it and those that didn't? Good question. And for the answer, we talked to Accenture's Seth Tuma. If you are more resilient, it is a competitive advantage. Seth is Accenture's global engineering and manufacturing lead. He says to think of periods of extreme volatility as the new norm. Even though everybody's aware of these, these challenges because they've got such global scope, the fact is if a company can be more resilient during that time, they're going to look better. They're going to look like they're more of an innovator. Seth's team conducted a study of over 1,000 companies looking at how they responded to recent disruptions to engineering, supply, production, and operations. The amount of revenue that's getting lost is quite significant. We, we see uh, $1.6 trillion basically being lost due to disruption, which is quite a lot across all industries. And we found that companies that are more resilient, the ones who can respond faster to these types of interruptions are able to increase and capture about 3.6% more growth than companies that aren't because of their ability to react quicker. That finding told something important. Anticipating disruptions wasn't just about mitigating losses. It led to gains. The question is actually, how do you make it an opportunity? How do you make an opportunity to capture more market share if you are more resilient than other companies? Aside from the obvious disruptions, other less notable trends have affected manufacturing in profound ways. You could see in the automobile sector when software became a big part of the software-defined vehicle, and you could actually release specific features that people asked for when they asked for it. This kind of customization is now standard. Manufacturers that recognize that will reap the rewards. The need for hyper-personalization is absolutely the, the, the way things are going. And the question about being able to configure new types of products for new types of demands and to be able to do that in a way that is efficient is going to be a competitive advantage. Supply chains need to be resilient as well as flexible. That's a tall order, but one that will fundamentally improve the way a business operates. And to do that, manufacturers need a complete detailed picture of their entire supply chain. This is tricky because supply chains can stretch across an entire operation and beyond to third parties like suppliers and distributors. It's easy for information to get siloed. When there's a problem in a particular part, they need to go back to another organization. They need to find where the problem was, maybe fight for a little bit until they find where it is, and then try again. And that just makes them very slow. So how does a team overcome these kinds of problems and evolve? That comes from a very good ability to have the types of data that is correctly describing not only the current operations, but potential simulations of that data around potential disruptions. And the first piece is about having the ability to be alerted in a way that actually is relevant to your business. This is true on a macro and micro level. It's true for political changes overseas that might impact access to materials. Just as it's true for two wires that get crossed on the factory floor. The sooner you're aware of an issue or a potential issue, the easier it is to deal with it. That's where a digital twin can help. 
The digital twin is a digital representation of something. Now that can be the product you want to build. It can be the factory that you are uh, manufacturing out of. It could be your supply chain and all the different permutations of it. New technologies allow designers and engineers to model everything from a tiny microchip to the giant factory in which it's made. Manipulating the inputs lets them see how a digital version of a real-life entity responds to changes. What happens to a windshield in extreme weather? What happens when you replace the engine with a more powerful one? What happens to the facility when materials are scarce or coming from a new source? Those variables then allow you to determine potential courses of action. 3D models have existed for decades, but now with so much data available and with enough computing power to analyze it, we're able to see how those models react under almost any circumstance. If you get sourcing data, manufacturing data, data from the field, and you combine it with the twin of the product that's just in that engineering department, you get more variables, you get more ability to simulate other, other factors. What you're doing there is you're allowing yourself to make a lot of decisions before actually throwing the design over the wall and having someone else build it. This technology makes it possible to look much more deeply into the here and now, to see how problems have arisen. It even helps prevent them from arising in the first place. So if you look at a supply chain and say, well, what would happen if these four things, you know, these four variables happen? And when those variables become hit, sit and hit a certain threshold, ooh, maybe I should be reacting on these particular problems before they actually happen. Having the data available at the time of engineering, you can start designing a product with the understanding of where potential interruptions are, where customers' needs and, 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 and demands are coming from, and look at the implication to the cost, to the value, to whether it can be manufactured with the existing manufacturing configuration. And there are also implications for the people building the products. Seth says that new insights should lead to a more flexible workforce, one that doesn't have to retrain every time there's a change or disruption in the manufacturing process. When we say flexible workforce, we mean that it, when you silo yourself or you create these one rules that are very much procedural in nature, you're not able to reconfigure yourself when these problems happen. Workers' expertise should be around the product, he says, not around individual processes. If they're able to go multi-product and understand kind of more the product-centric versus process-centric and provide a larger list of products that they actually can work with, then they're able to they pivot to something else. Seth says that the power of these models doesn't stop at the end of the production line. When an enterprise gathers enough of its data, a digital twin can show how a small change during production might impact things way down the road. Whether there would be service problems because of things they've seen in the past in the field that basically says, actually, when you make this type of design, uh, these types of segments have problems with it because we've seen our warranty claims go up. All of that data could be made earlier so that when you actually have it and you put it on top of that engineering twin I mentioned, you actually see the implications of those decisions very early on. One of the big trends that came out of the supply chain restructuring from the pandemic mm -hmm. that I thought was really interesting mm -hmm. is that you see so much more personalization now. Well, for me, for sure, I think that I already get some personalized or bespoke orders mm -hmm. when it comes to, you know, now there's more popularity in rental clothing or personal right, stylists. Right. And so I'll get a box of five items or six items of clothing each month. And that's all highly, highly curated for me and my individual tastes. But more and more, you're seeing that for kids when it comes to their science and math boxes yeah, of, yeah. of crafts. And those can be personalized to their interests. 
Right, right. I see a ton of it. There, there's uh, one particular brand of electric vehicle that everyone seems to have, and they were all mm-hmm. black until, you know, all of a sudden <laughs> you could get them wrapped with this shrink wrapped uh, coloring. And all of a sudden you're seeing them with like ladybugs on them and everything's wow. on fire. It's just like, yeah, right. everyone's got to have their own. And I think as consumer demand changes towards more personalization and manufacturers are able to meet that demand, manufacturers are having to pivot. Right, right. Which has got to put a lot of pressure on them, which makes me wonder, how do you do that? How do you make that shift? Exactly. So I think it's a great time then to go back to Eric Green of Dassault Systems to hear how they're helping their clients build that kind of resilience into their factories. The differences between now and what was taking place 25 to 30 years ago is, is essentially boils down into a couple of categories. One is time horizon. Let's think back to what it was like before online ordering and overnight delivery became the norm. You might order something from a catalog and wait six to eight weeks for it to show up on your doorstep. The time horizon for planning and executing and delivering products to market it was much longer. The other thing that's different is data. The availability of data now is much more pervasive, and the data to be used to make more informed, better decisions is available, and we have the computer processing power to do that today. With holistic real-time data, the latest digital twins inform every step of the process. What the actual assembly process looks like and the specific steps and sequences for those parts to come together and then what else is required. And we break that down into the manufacturing process. So if you're going to make an engine, how does that engine actually get made? And what are the parts that are comprised of it? And those come together in a sequence. And that all can be modeled in how those processes are done within the factory. Gone are the days of employees standing out on the factory floor, guesstimating what the plant should look like using cardboard boxes as placeholders. Today, teams from across the organization are able to collaborate wherever they are, working with the same data. One thing that we're doing, we're seeing with a lot of our customers, is the ability to break down those walls between engineering and manufacturing. And by doing so, you're getting people that are working off of a harmonized set of data and a single version of how that product is going to be built. Everyone from product designers to engineers can provide input, including the people doing the actual assembly. Assembly workers can even tour a digital version of the proposed facility and give their input on how to lay it all out. Getting that feedback from the people who are actually gonna be doing the job through this virtual environment before they actually put the assembly line together so I could take into account the worker's input which spawned innovation on changing how they actually were going to do the production line that they didn't model and simulate was pretty impressive. Kinks that might have taken weeks to just reveal themselves can now be worked out ahead of time. And if there's changes in the manufacturing process that will optimize the manufacturing process, that those changes can be done in a way that it doesn't affect the product design or impact the product design in a negative way. The same is true for building the actual product. In traditional manufacturing operations, it's not uncommon for issues to emerge after a prototype has been built, or even after orders have been assembled and sent out for delivery. So think about the amount of rework on something very large and complex, you know, like a piece of farm equipment or an aircraft where you have thousands of parts that are involved. 
Not to mention the fact that if those products are already delivered or in the distribution channel, then what you have to do with your dealer network or with the customers to, you know, make those changes. Picture a malfunctioning prototype. You can make an educated guess as to why it's not working, or you can take the entire thing apart to try and find the problem, or you can virtually disassemble the entire thing to examine every part. And by doing that product design in 3D, you have the ability to represent all the parts that come together, whether it's an airplane, whether it's a computer, whether it's an automobile. That 3D design can be decomposed so that you know that you know, part A has to attach to part B. And it's not just about diagnosing problems faster. It's also about diagnosing them accurately. Eric remembers one client who experienced a problem and thought they knew what it was until the model told them a different story. They thought they had a problem in a pre-assembly process that was creating a bottleneck in their factory because of the way that they were doing the assembly activities. And it was very complex. Individuals had suspicions, but others debated them about it because they had a different perspective. The actual problem was in the part preparatory process that was one step before that assembly operation. When they looked at everything together, they were actually able to talk through it and allow them to collaborate. I love how the response to all this supply chain disruption has been companies that are now taking advantage of new technologies like digital twins to really mm-hmm. double down on the the kind of the flexibility that they can produce within their different factories. We've talked about disruptions in cars, but of course, part of cars are microchips. Yeah. Microchips are in everything. Part they of everything are is in microchips. our phones, our other electronic devices. And yet they were really hard to get into the end products. Right, which meant that you were lack- lacking the ability to get all sorts of things you never would have thought you'd be missing, which is... Yeah, yeah that was a, <laughs> a major casualty of the supply chain disruptions of the past few years. So now that we understand one way of solving the disruptions, these digital twins and how useful they are and how they look in practice, let's go over to Micron's Manish Patia to hear how this technology is changing the way that one of the world's largest chip manufacturers stays ahead of supply chain disruptions. There is no manufacturing process on the planet that is more complex than building semiconductor devices at the leading edge of the industry. Manish is Micron's executive vice president of global operations. And those operations are mind-boggling in scope and sophistication. We have thousands of process steps, each with their own nanoscale processes that need to be repeated with zero defectivity and very, very limited variability uh, for every single process. Any of those thousand processes somehow deviates even minutely. It can um, ruin the process for not just um, that one chip that we're making, but all of the chips that have been run through until we're able to detect that variation. It probably doesn't come as a shock to learn that the process of making microchips is a complicated one, but it's still pretty astounding to hear Manish lay out what it takes to make the tiny chips that form the foundation of most modern devices. A semiconductor manufacturing factory is almost like a small city. 
and thousands of pieces of equipment in that facility, each of them with their own stoplights, red, green, yellow, saying, I'm running or I'm available. And then imagine all of these wafers, hundreds of thousands of wafers that are moving around in this facility, trying to go from one process step to the next. Micron makes memory chips, the kind that store all the data on your phone or laptop. And in the world of semiconductors, wafers are the fundamental pieces that make that vast amount of storage possible. What we actually do is start with, believe it or not, um, effectively molten sand, molten silicon, and we pull a perfect single crystal out of that molten silicon into a cylindrical tube and it forms that naturally because the surface tension of the molten silicon naturally forms a, a cylindrical form. So a wafer is actually a sliced disk of a, of a silicon cylinder that we then use to build chips on top of. We're slicing these wafers and creating these perfect silicon sort of almost canvases that we start with to then be able to build these, uh, the, the thousands of process steps that I mentioned, start on top of these perfect silicon crystal canvases. After making these tiny wafers, the next step is to carve intricate patterns into their surface. And it takes very sophisticated, very expensive equipment to do all this work. All of that equipment together goes into a large-scale um, hundreds of thousands of, of, of uh, square feet of what we call clean room or clean room where we control the temperature, the humidity and the particle count so that we don't have any particles falling on the wafer throughout the manufacturing process. To make a microchip, machines carve microscopic patterns into the wafer's surface. Even the tiniest stray particle can affect these patterns. That makes the process all the more complicated because humans, we tend to bring particles with us. One of the biggest contaminants in the clean room are people. So we have to both um, first reduce the number of people who move in. So every process step is automated. Nobody touches a wafer. It's all robotic automation to be able to transition wafers from each of these process steps. But then even when you have uh, technicians or engineers going in to maintain equipment or install new equipment, you know they have to wear what we call bunny suits because we need to protect uh, the wafers from, uh, from us. Reliable automation is essential in this line of work. That's just one of the reasons why digital twins are so useful in this process. Another is the sheer complexity of it all. Modeling these thousands of steps beforehand is infinitely preferable to trial and error. No two uh, batches of wafers follow the same path because every three to four minutes we're re-simulating, trying to optimize where should each wafer go based on each of these pieces of equipment's red, green, and yellow stoplights. Micron's factories, also referred to as fabs, are packed with sensors that aid this modeling process. They have to be because what they're building is so sensitive. So, for example, if, we, if uh, a certain um, wafer is planned to go through a certain piece of equipment next, but then that piece of equipment starts to so show some variation that we're monitoring, we have to take that equipment down to maintain it. But we have to create a new path for that wafer to go. And that may have knock-on effects for other wafers. And on top of everything, these memory facilities are enormous and enormously expensive, meaning that Micron has to think deeply about the future and future disruptions as it plans and expands its fabs. 
the the cost of a fab can be you know fifteen to twenty billion dollars, but the lead time to build a fab is also two to three years. So if you don't have that factory already, you know, with enough room for expansion of uh, additional equipment, it's going to be two to three years before you can add that. It's no secret there's been a lot of concern lately about the global chip supply chain. It's become a key topic of U.S. policymaking. Micron being the only U.S. Uh, memory manufacturer, we're the only ones who can actually add memory to the United States mix or portfolio of semiconductor uh, products. So that's kind of the, the backdrop. Accenture's research says that in three years' time, 78% of manufacturers will use multiple facilities to produce their products, up from just 41% that are already doing so. So Micron's not alone in expanding its footprint. First, they're adding to existing facilities in Boise, Idaho. A new manufacturing fab there will be physically adjacent to Micron's R&D center with full digital integration between the facilities. No more silos. And then at even larger scale, we've selected um, Clay, New York, right outside of Syracuse, as the home for our mega scale project, which will have four different fabs um, to be able to produce a significant volume of these memory chips after they've been developed in Idaho. And so the rationale is that you can share the equipment capability back and forth and move production between them and actually optimize the capital efficiency of the facility. Being able to service multiple facilities efficiently is a huge plus because the nature of making microchips is that they have to keep getting better. We are building things that are at you know nanoscale and are continuing to progress forward, introducing new processes that enable higher performance and lower power chips every 12 to 18 months. These processes and these kinds of facilities were unimaginable not all that long ago. Now they're a showcase for the future of manufacturing. Every single factory has hundreds of thousands of sensors, which bring in um, millions of data points continuously that we're constantly uh, optimizing. In fact, across our global network of factories around the world, we have 250 million different control points that we're monitoring and managing instantaneously all the time. At least it just blows my mind how much more capacity there is, really like scaled capacity for managing organizations like this. Right. And those digital twins, their early rudimentary days started out as cardboard boxes, <laughs> which is wild. And now it's factories teaming with sensors that let manufacturers model everything in them. Yeah. So to learn more about the trends in today's episode, check out Accenture's Resiliency in the Making report at Accenture.com slash resiliency. Big thanks to Seth Tuma. And to Eric Green and Manish Batia for talking to us. Built for Change is a podcast from Accenture. More episodes are coming soon. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, leave us a review. 